You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. lovers this is modern musicology my name is alan and let me say hello to stephanie seymour hey people and rob levy hey how are you and we are joined by a very special guest today we have mr alan j porter who is the author of a book called before they were beatles and the host of a podcast of the same name Mr. Porter, how are you this afternoon? Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. And yes, I'm good this afternoon. I have not long just finished listening to my first listen through of the Red and the Blue album. So yay. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Excellent. looking forward to talking about it. Excellent. So can you tell us a little bit about your Beatles journey? Like where did it begin? And can you tell us what led up to the book and the podcast that you've done because these are these are filled with minutia there is a lot of detail there's a lot of background information in these things and i'm curious to know what got you to the point of wanting to write a book and do a podcast where did the idea for this come from wow um how long have we got for the show um <laughs> so as you can probably tell from the accent i'm even though i live in texas i'm not exactly from around these here parts um originally <laughs> Um, so born and raised on the banks of the River Mersey, but not in Liverpool, further upstream, just outside of Manchester. Um, first encountered the Beatles when I was four years old, uh, when they were on a local news channel, just as they were breaking. So October 63 wow. um, was my first and sort of grew up listening to the Beatles. Um, and then when I was in my teens in the 70s, when I started buying records, obviously started buying a lot of Beatles records. By the time I got to college, I was actually going to college in Liverpool. And uh, as you do when you're at college, um, you sort of end up in a lot of bars in the evenings uh, in and around Liverpool. And of course, every bar and going to listen to bands in little clubs in and around Liverpool, every club you're in, somebody had a Beatles story about how they helped discover the Beatles. The number of people I met in Liverpool who helped discover the Beatles was immense. Um, it's like there was a, at least one guy in every bar who helped discover the Beatles. Oh, I'm sure there was. Um, or was going to be the drummer instead of Ringo. Or you know, every, Everybody had a Beatles story. Um, and that sort of stuck in my mind. And then many years later, um, I sort of got to know um, through email uh, Rod Davis of the Quarrymen, who was the banjo player in the Quarrymen. And, um, and we had exchanged a, a few emails. And I thought, there's this some interesting stuff he's telling me here. And, that, and then I... I was traveling a lot for work and, you know, after many, many evenings of sitting in a hotel room, there's only so many crappy TV shows you can watch. And I'm like, what am I going to do while I'm on the road? And I just started writing the book. Um, I thought I wanted to try and get to the bottom of all these different stories I'd heard either when I was in Liverpool or over the years. Um, and at that point, nobody had really done a book focused on those. When I was trying to sell the book, everybody was like, nobody's interested in the Beatles before they were on Ed Sullivan. So I ended up uh, 20 years ago now, um, writing 
the book before there were Beatles and self-published it. And it has been a good, strong, steady seller, still sells 20 plus years on. Wow. Um, but of course, with any book like that, as soon as you publish it, you find out bits of it are wrong. Um, yeah. Um, so including Rod Davis literally emailing me the day after it came out and said, that photograph we thought was taken on this date, we were all wrong. It was taken on this other date. Oh, like, wow. Thanks. <laughs> thanks. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just sort of been ticking in the background and I've been thinking about doing a expanded updated version for a while. And I thought, well, I wonder if anybody would be actually interested in that. And I thought a good way to test that was to put the podcast to like do a podcast about it. And so the book covers, stops with them going to Hamburg. The book really covers them from teenagers, the formation of the band and them going to Hamburg. So the podcast we did the book and extended on the existing book, but then we also carried the story on into the Hamburg and Cavern years up to Ringo joining the band and them actually up to the end of 1962. Because a lot of folks, when they'd read the book, they were like, this is great, but what about Ringo? Um, so I wanted to bring his story in and mm -hmm. bring it up to, so that's what we've done. And I'm actually working on that expanded updated version of the book now. And I have a monthly newsletter um, so if you subscribe to beforebeatles.substack.com, um, you can take the journey along with us as we write and expand and update the book because I'm doing monthly updates and extracts in the newsletter as well. So, um, and, the, and the podcast just took off much more than I expected it to. Mm. And in January, we're actually going to launch a new series. We've actually, on the podcast now, done the story all the way through to uh, December 62. So we've told the story of them before they were Beatles. And in January next year, we're launching a new series called The Forgotten Beatles, where we're going to take a, a deeper dive of the other people who were seemingly peripheral to the story. You know, the, the well-known ones like Pete Best and Stuart Sutcliffe and mm -hmm. that we'll cover, but we're also going to cover people like Chaz Newby, who played four gigs for them in bass when he was home from college. Uh, for, for his Christmas holidays, and ended up playing four gigs with the Beatles. Wow! Um, so we're gonna we're gonna dig into people like that as well. So that uh, sounds really interesting. And so if all of this stuff is successful, then of course that leads into the third thing, which is after they were Beatles, where you cover the solo careers of all the guys. So and <laughs> I think that's been busy. done. <laughs> that'll keep you for busy forever. <laughs> well, this has already been 20, 20 years of Beatles stuff. So, uh, yeah, another good 20 years out of the next <laughs> round. I think it'll be good. There you go. Yeah. All right. So we are recording this episode on November 12th. Two days ago, we got the brand new editions of the Beatles Red and Blue Collections. And that is uh, a, a collection that was originally released in April of 1973. It's a double set. The first half, of course, as everybody knows, the red one covers 1962 to 1966. The blue one, the second one, covers 1967 to 1970. And we have these brand new editions of them, expanded, remixed, and remastered by Giles Martin. And uh, it's been a really interesting experience listening to all this stuff. So, Mr. Porter, what can you tell us about the origins of these albums in 1973? As I mentioned earlier, I sort of grew up listening to the Beatles in the 60s. But by the time I started buying records for myself, the Beatles had bro broken up. Mm. Um, so 73, when these came out, was very much among my first record uh, purchases for myself um, and probably the most played albums that I got. Um, and to an extent, even though I'd grown up the Beatles, they were sort of background to my mm. life. 
it was these two albums that really turned me into a big Beatles fan. And I think I've, I've been reading a lot over the last week or couple of days as people have been getting these albums about how this was their introduction to the Beatles, either during the seventies or with later reissue, you know, yeah. later on that uh, this is really what opened their minds uh, and ears to the whole of the Beatles catalog. And I think that's and the, the progression. I think that's always been one of the strengths of this two albums is, is that chronological journey that you take with them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and obviously, you know, 62 to 66 and then 67 to, what was it? 70, 70, 70, 70. Yeah. I, they're, they're, you know, they're a good, it's a good division point, if you like, between the, the touring Beatles and the studio Beatles um, uh, and the way it worked there. So unfortunately, I sort of lost mine when we moved over to the US and we were cutting down on weight to ship over. You don't yeah. want to be paying for too much. So all my, all my vinyl was sold off um, because oh. we all had CDs by then and nope, nobody had vinyl. Nobody had turntables in the mid-90s. Uh, mid right. Um, it was all CD. So I lost mine. So I really, I was really excited to get these new um New versions, but I've had quite a lot of friends and folks on Facebook and say, oh, I've still got my vinyl, my original vinyls. Too. And mm -hmm. yeah, and I still listen to them. And these were my gateway drug to the Beatles. So uh, I think these albums were also, you know, because these were the record company response to like sort of bootleg stuff that was put out. And right, then they yeah. decided to yeah. put these albums out so that there would be an official compilation in a way. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, even in its original form, I mean, they've been expanded considerably in the, this new edition with 21 additional tracks, but even in the original version of them, they were pretty comprehensive. I mean, it yeah. really covers a lot of stuff from those two respective time periods as far as getting to know the Beatles catalog and their stylistic changes and the way that they evolved over that 10 year period. I mean, it's, it's just one of the greatest I mean, when you call it a greatest hits collection, it really is a, a, a killer collection of, of material that gives you a good view into what was happening with that band. And it's, I don't think it could be bettered. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about these new additions. Yeah. What was your first reaction to them when you first got them and started listening to them? What, what really struck you about these? I'm not a remix. Per, like I, it's fine to me. And I think it's great that a lot of, a lot of, uh, albums lately have been you know remixed and you can hear things better but and i don't tend to go bananas over stuff like that but when i put my headphones on to listen to this these new mixes i i really was kind of blown away by just hearing a a modern sounding mix that just brought out so many things that you really couldn't hear so well before especially as rob and i were talking about obviously ringo you know rob you were saying Ringo yeah. really is a beneficiary of this in many ways. But I also heard so much of the percussion that was a lot of times in the background, you just didn't, couldn't fully hear. But also just hearing the mix of their voices and the mix of the music, everything, I think to me, it sounded, I, I really lo love most of the things. There's, there's definitely tracks that I think they didn't do well on. I Am the Walrus being one of them, but... God, man, when I heard Magical Mystery Tour, that is my favorite one of the, of the mixes. I just was, I was pretty much, like I've played that like 20 times already. <laughs> yeah, I was pretty much straight into it, like 
5.30 a.m. Friday uh, when I got up. Like, oh, time to wake up. Time for the Beatles, which was kind of annoying to other people I live with. But it wasn't really until I got to Hard Day's Night that I really heard a lot of stuff. I mean, I'd heard Love Me Do before. And I was like, okay, I get it. But Hard Day's Night, mm -hmm. to me, it's like you could just hear Ringo bashing the holy daylights out of those drums. And this this is going to lead to a conversation Steph and I had a little earlier about this. But um, that was sort of the first time I'm like, okay. I mean, before it sounded clearer, but they sounded still familiar. Hard Day's Night was kind of the launch point for me. Like, okay, this is different. And it might have been the the ear has to get used to it. Yeah. You know? For me, the whole experience is weird because it's it's almost like finding out you have a a child you didn't know you had or something because you've heard these recordings so long in your in your memory and we are all of a generation where the like we don't even have to like put the the music on to know what these sound like we hear them in our head like if alan just said help by the beatles we yeah. just hear it yeah true and and now we have to reprogram our brain to hear it in this new way as opposed to the old way so it's kind of an interesting rewiring of of what we know as a cultural thing. I was really impressed by how clear everything was. There's a lot of stuff that that came out and I, I, I've i been wrestling with this as a lot of other people have too, is that, you know, well, we'll get to this in some of the other songs later, but like some of the songs, I'm like, is that supposed to be clean? Is it supposed to be pristine sounding? You know, I'll talk yeah. about this a little later when we get into actual songs. Yeah. But so there's some of that, but I was just really amazed at like just the clarity of it and some of the stuff that got brought out. There's, there's some of the Harrison guitars that I that I hear a little clearer and a lot of the Ringo drumming. So for me, it was like just kind of this weird, jarring, sensual experience as well as a cultural one. Yeah, I, I would say that was for me was the was just the clarity of it. There was several times when I was just listening to it and I said to my wife, I hadn't heard that. Bit. I hadn't heard that before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, again, some of it was just background stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the chorus of voices at the beginning of Sergeant Pepper, I'd never really heard before. Some of the stuff at the end of the tracks as they're fading out, you know, yes. snatches of even like, sounded like studio conversation or, or whatever, just going in there. Um, but yes, the drumming, um, I'm, a, I'm a huge uh, flag waver for Ringo. Um, so I think um, he, these mixes really show what a very... Uh, innovative drummer he was. Um, I think it really helps with that. Um, and also some of some of um, Paul's bass lines coming across a lot cleaner. Oh, yeah. And I agree. Clearer. Yeah. That was one of the things that really struck me. So to, to back up a little bit, everything from the, most everything from the, the Blue Album, the second volume, comes from Giles Martin's recent remixes and remasters of the 50th anniversary editions of those particular albums, Abbey Road and all of those. The red edition, though, has that from Revolver. But most everything before that, these are brand new stereo mixes. And Giles has said in the press that, first of all, they weren't planning on doing the earlier albums because he didn't think that it would even be possible to get these kind of mixes from that earlier stuff, from those recordings. And he was very, very surprised at the way that these early singles were just made to sound so much newer. And I don't remember, was it Paste? It was one of the magazines said that um, these new mixes made it sound like these recordings could have come from an uh, up-and-coming garage band like a week ago. Like they sound that new and that fresh. One of the things that really stood out to me is that everything seems very balanced. 
like the guitars versus the bass. You're talking about the bass parts coming through. There's a lot of them that to me sound like everything gels in a whole new way. And this is mainly from the, the Red album. Everything has a very clean and very new and modern, as, as Stephanie was saying, a very modern sound. And Giles was also talking about how the biggest surprise for all of them when it was done was getting a whole new drum sound basically from Ringo and -hmm. being able to hear him in those mixes in a way that was never possible before. And I think it, I think it's remarkable. Yeah. He surprised himself. I was reading a similar, maybe the same article, but um, you know, he was just, didn't think that it could even be possible to get those results. And they did with that tech, the new technology. Which, you know, I guess that means that now we'll be seeing reissues of the first set of albums complete mm-hmm. albums that's not hopefully. a bad thing <laughs> hopefully yeah i mean t- to me when they announced these this, you know after hearing now and then which i'm sure we'll talk about later yeah um that made me really excited for this red album knowing that they were taking that same sort of technology and applying it to these early hits so, like the blue album great it'd be nice to have another version you know replace mm-hmm. my old version and maybe a, a few extra tracks yeah th- that's fine but yeah for me it was all about getting the uh, the red album and listening to these remasters of the of the early hits that uh, yeah. re- really made me hit the uh, buy now button on the on the Beatles website for few same for me too because you know I I'd, I'd heard most all of the I mean there was a few ones on the blue set that are new the ones from magical mystery tour a couple of non-album singles these are new stereo mixes for those but like the first 3 quarters of the red album red, is yeah. all yeah. brand new and it's so so good and just, you know, I, I am a, I love all Beatles songs, but I'm really more of a la- ladder catalog Beatles so fan. I. Yeah. And when I heard these earlier songs, it really made me more into them. So I do hope that they remix, you know, that they do full albums for all of these. I think it right. would be really interesting. Right. Um, but cause you're right. Like, you know, I think Robbie, did you say hard days night was the one that was, uh, yeah, there's there's a couple of these early ones. Uh, yeah. I mean, should I just jump into this now, I guess? Sure. Or, yeah. 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 So Hard Day's Night was interesting to me because I could hear the drums in a different way than I thought. I even think Ringo used at one point a bit of a brush on those than, than sticks, or at least it sounds like it. And I was just like, wow, I can hear the drums like and it doesn't sound like it's at the back of the room. Mm-hmm. Then I get to Twist and Shout. Mm. Ah, I know, and I was listening to that today. This is, yeah. this is one of the things that is, is a weird part for me, right? Is that... When I hear Twist and Shout, before all this came out, before I heard Twist and Shout, I hear with the rawness of his voice and sort of the ramshackle musical instruments behind it, I hear the very early sort of, you could draw a lineage from Twist and Shout to punk because it's from rock, it's almost like from rockabilly to punk or rockabilly to rock to the, to the to punk because it's very sort of ramshackled. It's bands that don't necessarily master their instruments yet things like that and then you've got john's voice which is just raw it sounds like he literally is singing with a sore throat or that he's Mm -hmm. like being stabbed while he's singing i don't know what it is right (laughs) i I doubt that's it (laughs) it just sounds absolutely raw now cleaned up it sounded it sounded faster and it's and some of this is all in your mind too right i know that yes your mind does rework these it sounded faster and the it just sounded like polished and I'm not sure that song's supposed to be polished. 
roll over Beethoven. I'm not sure that's supposed to be possible. I am with you 100%. Like I said, I was really excited for the Red Album. The tracks that disappointed me were the cover yes. versions. The covers. I, I'm, I'm, maybe because my interest is the very early Beatles right. and the Hamburg and Cavan days, and I've listened to a lot of those tapes. I also co-manage a tribute, Beatles tribute band mm. that focuses on the Cavan and Hamburg days. So I'm, I'm used to listening to these those tracks, as Rob says, in a very raw state. Mm -hmm. For me, you're right. The Beatles were the proto-punks. The Hamburg Cavanera Beatles, before they got in the studio, you can draw a direct line from them to the punk. Twist and Shout in particular is John's Hamburg voice. I mean, that's what he called it. I mean, because, you know, he screwed his voice singing for eight yeah. hours and shouting on stage in right. Hamburg in smoke-filled rooms. Uh, and Twist and Shout is a great example of his Hamburg voice. Um, so yes, I, I was really looking forward to hearing those. I was like, oh, great. They're going to do some of the really early stuff. And when I heard them, I'm, I'm with you, Rob. I'm like, nope, too polished. It mm. didn't catch me at all. So, I mean, I liked it. Don't get me wrong. I liked yeah, it. no, I, I liked them, but they're not the right versions of those songs for me anyway, but I'm, I, I've got an inherent bias to the, yeah, but, the, the raw stuff. So. But I also made a correlation that I never had made before between Twist and Shout and Revolution later. And that mm -hmm. you almost see that sort of rough and ready, rough and tumble band back on Revolution. And it's almost like with Revolution, they're trying to sort of tap into the Hamburg sound to stay together. All That's probably me, me reaching. But like, I want to hold your hand sounds great. Yes. You know, I was just going to say that. Yes. So what is it about the ones that work versus the ones that don't? That that's I guess that's the million dollar question. But I think that's subjective. I mean, I really do because like I, you know, like just saying before, like I am the walrus that didn't do it for me. There's, it just sounds too different and weird to me. But then again, there's, you know, magical mystery tour, which I could listen to all day long. I think it's a subjective thing too, of what, and what, how your brain is wired yeah. to hear things. And yeah, like to me, the first 30 seconds of here comes the sun. I'm like, wow, that guitar sounds amazingly better than it ever did. And I love it. And then I'm like, but the rest of the song sounds the same. You know, there's little bits and pieces, right? No, it's just little bits and pieces, right? And I kind of felt the same way about the guitar intro to Beethoven. Yes. Like, I, like I, it felt crisper. It felt like a, a lot more precise than I'd ever heard it before. And, mm -hmm. you know, the thing about Rollover Beethoven is that when a band says, hey, I'm going to play Roll Over Beethoven, it's kind of like when you do Rock Around the Clock. You're, you don't want it to sound pretty. It's supposed to sound like dirty like and early. and what Ira was saying yeah, last exactly. week, remember? Yeah. Ira was I saying mean, the, the same thing. Those, those records are like messy on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Roll Over Beethoven seemed really flat to me. Yes. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Interesting. You know, there was, I was reading a few articles and there talking about hearing things differently, there actually may be a few different things that like, um, Alan, you were saying that they've, they, they've, um, brought up at the end of the mixes or even in the beginning, because there was yeah. someone that was mentioning the opening lines of can't buy me love and how, and like what happened to the, the, um, first lines where Paul sings, you know, can't buy me love. And instead of seeing the lilt in love, you just hear mm. can't buy me love, like a straight love. Because I, what I think, my theory is they're mixing, there's a double on that song, right? He's double mm -hmm. vocals. Yeah, they yeah. brought up the one that probably didn't have as much of a lilt. You can, you mm -hmm. can still hear a double vocal on those three lines, but it doesn't, you can't really hear the full double, I think, until he starts really singing the whole song. So there might be things like that that really are different because 
they're mixing, you know, they're mixing it differently. That's so interesting because I didn't, I didn't notice that. I A yeah. beat him like seventeen times. I was like, yes, he's right. Yeah. You right. know, there's a lilt. <laughs> Speaking of that, when these first came out, so uh, this was Friday, and I was planning on Friday, I was going to go and buy the CDs, but as soon as they were available on Spotify, I pulled them up, and I was on on my desktop, you know, and I don't have the best speakers on my computer they're fine but they're not like you know great quality but i was doing that and i was sort of listening through a little bit and then i just found a track here or there and i just compared i yeah. pulled from the original album i pulled from the number one collection i pulled from anthology i did you know and i just listened to the different ways and even on my substandard desktop speakers the the new mixes sound remarkably different, but I hadn't noticed any change like that. I mean, that's like a minutia that I hadn't quite got to yet, but I'm, right. well, I can't I wait to go and listen fan, to that. You know, like who knew, who, you know, knows every right. single note of every song. And I mean, I would know that on maybe like a crowded house song, but I maybe right. not on Beatles. I love the Beatles, but I'm not like a fanatic yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, on, on the early stuff, I should say on the earlier stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Since we just mentioned cover versions. One of the things I want to talk about in the red collection is that with all these expanded tracks, the original release, there was two things that it overlooked intentionally. One of them was any contribution vocally or songwriting by George. And the other one was any success that they had in their early releases with covers. Everything on the red collection originally was all Lennon and McCartney songs. And you totally missed out on those two aspects, very important aspects, I think, of the overview of the Beatles career. And that's one of the things that this new release corrects. We've got some George, not as many as I would like. We've got some George songs on the Red Collection, and we have representation of their biggest hits of cover songs. So I think it's a much more well-rounded collection than it was originally. Right. I mean, I think the reason there was no cover songs on the original one probably just came down to financial. Oh, I'm sure it did. Of licensing. <laughs> I'm sure that was the, right. the main thing. Yeah. 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 It's also easier now to deal with the Chuck Berry estate with his kids and his family than it was with Chuck Berry himself, um, just in terms of rights and, and, and money, because the amount of money Chuck Berry wanted versus the amount of money that his kids want with time, you know, times have changed. Right. So I think that's part of it too. Um, I also think too, that part of this is that Harrison really thinks his thought, his record should be left in the context of the albums and not lifted and separated and thrown in with other things. So I think that I, I read that somewhere that that was part of the original mm. reason yeah. why the albums were that way. As he was really finicky about track order and placement and things. And when you read the history of the Beatles, and Alan, you might know more about this than me, but Harrison was the one that was really particular about where the album tracks were and how everything flowed. And I think he did a lot of sort of the the final tracking with Martin, if I'm, if I'm right. I might be wrong on that, but I thought... No, I, 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 I think you're right. I, he had He was more thinking Sergeant Pepper aside, I think, which was... McCartney's thing beginning to end, but um, he was, George was very, as you say, sort of had more of the artistic vision of how the album should flow. Um, yeah. As a, you know, the rest of it was, just, was this song good enough to be on the album? Yes, no. But where it actually appeared on the album, I don't think they were that particularly bothered about. Um, George was 
I think more particular about that. So, um, yeah. Well, if, if that's the case and, and he wasn't bothered by not having a song included on red, he missed out on a lot of royalties. I don't know. That I, doesn't, I wouldn't go so far as to say he wasn't bothered about it. Well, probably... <laughs> I'm sure he was bothered, but you know, yeah. I, I'm sure his film company did quite well and he's probably fine. Still, <laughs> still. But um, I, to me, uh, I'm just a George boy and I yes. am always kind of like protective about the yes. George yeah. identity within the band. And I'm happy that he's now included in the Red Collection and that we have a little bit more from him on the blue set as well. Yeah, actually, I mean, just going back to the business side, you know, we said about that this album was these albums were released to stop the bootlegs and everything yeah. else that was coming around yeah. from the record company. I, and we sort of just touched on, you know, the reason probably there wasn't the the covers on there was was the the money side. I also wonder if that's partly why George's stuff wasn't on there because it it was sort of driven very much by Northern songs and the the company that owned the rights to the to the actual songs would probably make a lot more from yeah. A pure Lennon and McCartney uh, collection. So yeah, could be, could be. The other thing too is I haven't seen the physical copy yet because I'm desperate living in squalor and I haven't gotten the physicals yet. But is there a booklet or, or what? What what's the liner stuff look like for this? I don't know about the CDs where I have the vinyl and in each vinyl is like a two sided sheet with yeah, I've um, seen an that. Essay. Yeah, there's a there's a little booklet in the CD. Okay, cool. That's kind of what I would, because I'm a big fan of, I'm still a big fan of booklets and, and information mm -hmm. on things. I'm still right. a big fan of that. The other thing too that I want to, that this set kind of does that kind of mildly irritates me a little bit is one of the things I loved about Blue and Red was the cover art. And um, the cover art for it is very much, the, you know, red. It's like, okay, I can know where this era of the Beatles is. Blue is the same. But I love this idea of returning to the same point in sort of time and space with the band in two different times and things. And I think that like you could look at it easily and go, okay, this is early Beatles. This is late Beatles. I get it. Now it doesn't look like there's mu that much of a separation. It looks like they're just kind of mushed together. If, if the artwork that I'm looking at is right. Um, no, they're, they're exactly the same as the original covers. But yeah. I thought like there's a, every picture I see, they're like next to each other, right? Kind of. No. No, yeah, I, see, I don't I think so. I see like so. a long box. Like this, what I've seen is like they are um, on the cover of the slipcase. Yeah, that's what I've seen is the slipcase. I have the actual al the actual album covers are exactly the same as the original. Right, I've only seen the slipcase. Right, and I was concerned that they were damaging that because I like having the individual art on each individual yeah. section. I think yeah. that's fantastic. It's, right. it's it's been the same exactly the same on every reissue. Yeah, so, and that, that's it, part of what bugged me. Is like, why is this different? So I know I'm being the old the old finicky guy in the room. Actually, but, you're not, because I've heard a few people online and say, why didn't they take the opportunity to redesign the art covers like they did with Hollywood Bowl when it came out as eight days a week mm. and stuff? And I was like, oh, God, no. These no. are so iconic. They for are. Such, for, a, for a generation like us where, it, you know, this the, the, these two albums were our gateway drug to the Beatles, it's like, no, don't change them. Yes. They, they mean so much to so many people. Oh, exactly. They're so recognizable. There is no way you can change it. But what if they just used the same cover photos but swapped the colors? <laughs> totally kidding. <laughs> that would throw everybody for a loop. <laughs> well, I was going to give it a sort of talk about a more overall arching thing, which I already talked to Alan and Rob about a little bit, but you know, my, when I talked to my mother about this topic of the podcast this week, 
she's a huge music fan. She's 81. She grew up with the Beatles and loves the Beatles. And actually the reason I even know who the Beatles are is because my parents used to play the Beatles all the time in the house. So one of the first, when I explained what they were doing with the, the, you know, the Atmos remixes and everything, she had a, her first comment to me, which I thought was really interesting from my 81 year old mom was, what do you think about this changing the art in a way of, you know, changing the way, like the Beatles had this technology when, you know, had their own technology when they were making these records, this is what they put out then. And this is what, you know, they felt represented them. And I just, there's many different answers for this or sides that you can pick on this. And I feel like there's a lot of discussion about this online, Mm -hmm. but I think that, you know, from a purist point of view, you can definitely, you know, still listen to your old mixes if you want. If from a, I personally hear these and now I want to just hear the new, the newer mixes on most of the songs because I feel like it brings out a whole new thing. And I don't think it changes it too much for me where I'm like, oh, I'm not listening to the Beatles, you know? And also, I also think there's a more clinical side of the whole thing where you can just listen to them and say, wow, this is really interesting. And this is how uh, this, you know, we're hearing new things, we're hearing different aspects of it, but you can just go back to listen to your old mixes if you feel like it, you know? Yeah. I kind of feel like, even though I think your mother's exactly right, that they're the technology that they used at the time, they got the best that they could have from what they were using and felt that that was what represented them the best. They were also people who were not afraid of technology. And I think that if all four of them were still here, they would be as into this of, you know, bringing their music to a whole new sound, a whole new way through a whole new technology. I think that would excite them, especially John. Yeah. John loved the studio trickery. He loved experimenting. And and I think that they would have been all into this. We also know from now and then that they were already, in, that at least two of them are into it because they yeah. use that technology for that song. So I think so too. And I sort of ex- was explaining that to her and, you know, just. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you said about, you know, they use the, techno- the technology to the its limits at the time to project who they were, but they actually went be to Alan's point, they went beyond that a lot. They actually, mm-hmm. particularly yeah. once they got into the studio phase, they came up against those limits. Yeah. Yeah. And they were, they invented ways to get past that, uh, you know, and a lot of things that are now standard recording studio stuff is because of the Beatles. Yeah. Um, so yes, I think, um, you know, as you said, certainly, you know, Paul and Ringo would have had to have signed off on this anyway. And um, they're True. clearly, clearly, you know, uh, 50% of them are clearly in favor of it. And, and uh, you know, I think um, John and George would have been too, because that was part of the Beatles DNA. That's what, you know, we talked about that progression that you hear throughout this album from, right. you know, the start of the red to the end of the blue. It's like 10 years progression in the art, I think is an illustration of the fact that they would have been gone along with this sort of thing. And plus they, you know, now they're savvy businessmen. They weren't back then, but now they are. And <laughs> Right. Right. Yeah. Um, but- you know, the other thing about this and and something that you just said, this is only 10 years. I mean, mm-hmm. the amount of, I mean, we've talked about this before and everybody has said this, but it's still just. Well, actually, it's not even 10 years. It's eight. It's, it's eight years of recording. Mind exactly. Down. And the amount that they changed musically, compositionally, technologically, 
everything that they did changed so much in eight years. That just blows my mind. Yeah. When you think about the fact that, well, yes, it it was eight eight year recording career. These guys were in their early twenties. Yeah. Um, and just the legacy that they've left behind, what they changed and the legacy they left behind is just uh, incredible. Right. There's not many bands that did another band that comes to mind that really radically changed, um, was the beach, comes to my, my mind right away as beach boys, you know, just as a comparison or just a, yes, someone who wildly improved and just got, got incredible, you know, complicated sounds and complicated songs Mm -hmm. and. I would really say matured. I would say Queen and ELO also were very much pushing boundaries mm-hmm. and and expanding beyond what they had the ability to accomplish. Um, but you know, yeah, I, th- I throw I throw David Bowie in that mix, mix as well. Oh yeah, but, okay. Um, but the, the the interesting thing I've heard this about said a lot. One of the fascinating things about the Beatles is it's a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Yes. And none of the other groups we've mentioned have a really clearly defined end, other mm. than maybe dying. Mm. Um, but 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 even you know, um, Queen, whatever version of Queen you wanted to say, you know, played a gig here in Austin like mm-hmm. two weeks ago. Yep. You know, they're, they're still out there. They're still right doing stuff. You know, the Stones' a new album out. And stuff. Yeah. It, it, these stories are dragging on and on and on, sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a not so good way. But the Beatles is a very definite microcosm of time that impacted yeah. our whole culture. And I think, yeah, that makes them unique. Agreed. Yeah. All right. Any specific tracks that we want to hit that surprised us in a good way or bad way? Well, I mentioned Twist and Shout was my sort of disappointment. Um I'm actually going to completely disagree with Stephanie. I actually love I like the walrus. <laughs> um, so, That's okay. Um, we can agree to disagree. Yeah, we can. <laughs> uh, I really enjoyed that mix. Yes. Um, I, I will say, I think it was in my life mm. was when I heard in my life, I was like, oh yeah, I really, really yeah. get it now. Yeah. Wow. There is some stuff on the the second half, the second disc of the Red Collection, which to me sounded so much more full. It sounded like, this is a silly way to say it, but it sounded like a full band. You know, Mm -hmm. it sounded like everything was in balance and everything had a really big, nice, fat sound. And a couple of those are Drive My Car, which I thought sounded remarkable on this collection. And Hide Your Love Away was great. We can work it out. Sounded phenomenal. So, you know, that's one of the things they sounded like a rock band playing in a club right in front of you. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I absolutely loved. I, I thought, you know, special ones to me were, as I've mentioned, Mi- Magical Mystery, Mystery Tour from Blue. But Red, I um, I was really into She Loves You and uh, yeah. I Want to Hold Your Hand. Um and can't buy me love when because I maybe because I listened to it seventeen thousand times to try to listen to that one difference, but I was like that. Right, <laughs> sounds killer. I will, I will also say that the first three tracks, "Love Me Do," "Please Please Me," yeah, from me to you, just hit you yes. in the face. You know, they just come across so incredibly strongly, and I I thought it was I was just blown away by the difference. 
I agree. I, the second I put my headphones on, I was like, I just can't believe. And you know what's funny? I was even listening. I had, I was outside all day bird watching, and I just put stuff on on my phone just to listen to. And I mean, it's just a stinking iPhone, you know, it's you, the sound isn't great. But I, I could tell even then that yeah. it was, you know, because I, I was going back and forth like you were doing. You were saying you were listening to different versions of it. So I was doing the same thing, even on an iPhone. And um, <laughs> you can tell, you know. And I will say that I have spent more time with the red collection because like you, Steph, I am much more interested in the latter part of the mm. Beatles career. I love the experimentation. I love the, the psychedelia. I love all of the, um, I, you know, not using the word progressive in terms of progressive rock, but they were very progressive in mm -hmm. the way that they conceived songs and the way that they composed and everything. And um, so I really spent a lot more time with the Red Collection because this really made me hear some of that older stuff in a brand new way. Yeah. And I really found myself drawn to it much more so. A hundred percent agreed. Yeah. It made me more of a fan of their, their really early stuff. Yeah. I think uh, Here Comes the Sun, I think really came out a little more, more pointed. Hello, Goodbye sounded kind of weird to me. Just because it normally you kind of hear that sort of weird early phase of a breakbeat almost in it, and it just doesn't—I don't know—it just seemed kind of watery to me. That's not one. Of, that's a, not a new mix, though, is it? Hello, goodbye. That's from. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, I, it's, um, it's not. It's not. Yellow submarine sounds fantastic. Yes, it does. Um, which you know, I've I've always liked to begin with anyway, but I just. Uh, it, by the um, way, my grandkids will will attest to that because it was on i had the grandkids over yesterday when the albums arrived and we immediately put the red album on yeah and they actually stopped what they were doing and sang along to yellow submarine um, and, and for me the stuff on the red album is, is a little more particular because that's sort of like your gateway drug to the beatles right so every, you want yeah. that's like if, if you screw that up you you, you screwed the pooch on the whole thing right? <laughs> yeah um, the little kids when they're when they're young um <laughs> I really did think Sergeant Pepper sounded great. A Day in the Life sounded fantastic. It does a lot of nuanced stuff with Sergeant Pepper. And and to a certain extent, Magical Mystery Tour does do a little bit of the nuanced stuff with the sessions in and out. And I think, you know, just cleaning up the sound on yeah. some of that stuff is fantastic. I um get back sounded sounded great. There's some there's some Paul baseline stuff. I know Alan, you had mentioned that yeah. earlier. But the for me, the Paul baseline and get back. Uh, is, mm. is much clearer come together also is kind of got a little bit of a dirge to it that it, that it, uh it's kind of not necessarily there but the yeah right out of the shoot those first three tracks are great um help i think is surprisingly really good too it's a record it's i've heard great. a million times and that version of help is like wow this is fantastic yeah um, it is great i love I, it. I didn't think i could hear help again and have it sound you <laughs> <Exactly>. know exactly <laughs> You're like, I've heard this record like 50,000 times, but how does this sound? This sounds amazing. On Help in particular, too, you hear a lot more of Ringo as well. It, to me, it just sounds like they brought out a lot more of George and Ringo, more than the rest. And I started looking, because I'm that guy, at where placement, I started looking at photo pictures of the Beatles in the studio. And more often than not, Harrison's on a stool on the side and Ringo's in the back. And their mics are kind of not right on top of it. You can see now they might be other mics, and I'm not a studio guy, so I don't know. But I think, I think with some of these recordings, it kind of made up with some of the deficiencies in the placement of the mics. 
I mean, you may be right. I'm pretty sure I remember. I am overthinking this way more than I should, yeah, yeah. but yes. Yeah. I, I will say actually one more downer. There was actually one track I really did not like at all, uh, which was Old Brown Shoe. I did not like the 2023 mix of that. Interesting. Someone I read uh, I, online said the same thing. I thought it was just a mess and it completely brought the tone of the, the album down. Thankfully, it was the last track on that side of the vinyl. So, right. Um, right. We could immediately switch over to Here Comes the Sun uh, <laughs> and raise the tone, even though that's an older mix. But yes, it was, uh, yeah, it, it just seemed, I did, the thing is, I actually didn't remember it from the, the album before. So, and I'm sure it was on there, but um, yeah, it just. The comment I know, that just I like, read. About the that online said Giles yeah. has done a disservice to Old Brown. She totally forgetting to bring up a fader on a yeah. guitar line after the words from worse and tried to drag me down at zero forty one into the song. I cannot believe no one caught that. I thought that was really interesting. Hmm. Uh, yeah. That is interesting. That was a yeah. person's article. Yeah, hmm. yeah, interesting. So. so yeah, maybe there was a little thing. I mean, look, gosh, look how many. <laughs> Yeah, yeah oh, you. Yeah. <laughs> unless you were the people playing those songs and you were there at that time, it's really hard to know. Think yeah. about all the tracks and then get them perfectly. I mean, yeah. Okay, he he messed that up, but the you know. Um, yeah, I'm talking about one track, right? On six albums, you know, six <laughs> albums worth of music. So. Yeah, yeah. You know, what I really want with this, and you know, technology is different now. I almost wish they would have criterion this, in, in that I would almost have gotten a disc with like an audio commentary. Where they talk about each of the tracks and how they, I would that love to. Would be super interesting. Mm-hmm. I would and love to hear that. They're going to, you know, do that um, surprise us. <laughs> who knows? I, maybe there's another Disney Plus documentary in the works. Yeah, <laughs> that would be great. Oh my god, just that would to be see. So great. Oh my gosh, I would love it. So, since we're talking about more of the Blue Album right now, let's talk about now and then. Mr. Porter, we've talked about this on a previous show, but tell us your thoughts about now and then how it fits into the whole like canon of the Beatles. What, what do you think this song means to the completion we'll say of the Beatles catalog? I think it's a lovely coda to the Beatles catalog. I'm glad we've got it. Uh, um, it was an amazing journey, a 50 year journey for a piece of art to yeah. go from a homemade tape to a beautifully produced song. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the song itself. I think it would have been a middling album track. Right. Um, you know, but I think anybody that was expecting them to come out with, you know, another Eleanor Rigby or, right. you know, whatever was yes. just, yeah. Manage your expectations. Um, <laughs> it's true. I think I like it for more for what it represents than the song itself, if that makes sense. Agreed. Um, but I... I still like it when I hear it. It just doesn't stay with me. We, I, so the other morning, we, my wife and I were, were driving out to breakfast and it now and then came on Pandora. And we were like, okay, you know, we're humming along with it. We're enjoying it. And then it finishes. And then Fleetwood Max, The Chain came on. Mm. And I'm like, hmm, <laughs> I've pretty much forgotten now and then within two bars of The Chain starting. <laughs> Um, which says a lot. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I, I think I was talking to somebody about this the other night. I think you need to really appreciate it. You need to put it in context, you know, watch that 12 minute making yes. of video oh, yeah, that, I know. 
and then you know the actual music video came out and yes i cried and you know um <laughs> it, it got it gave me an emotional punch much more than i was expecting right um so i think with that supporting material and understanding the context yes it's an important song and i think it's a great coda it does it stand does it stand up as a song on its own not that well to be honest but I don't think either of the other two posthumous releases did well, either. So that's exactly but, what I was going to say. I remember when um, the, those first two, "Real Love" and "Free as a Bird," came out. I was a little underwhelmed with them, you know, because I was hoping that it was not expecting, but I was hoping that it would be another day in the life or something like that. But you know, it's not going to be because this is just a couple of songs that John sat at his kitchen table and wrote, you know, sat at the piano and worked out an arrangement. It's not going to be one of those, you know, big Beatles songs. It's just a John song that yeah, we I mean, now I felt that, retroactively felt this was more, turned into a Beatles song. Well, I felt this was more of a Beatles song than yeah, I think Free, so as, a bird. Free, and a bird, Free as a Bird was like little sketches that John did and the others like, oh, what bit's missing? We'll plug bits in. And it felt very disjointed. Yeah. Um, at, at least this one feels like a complete song and it's yeah. sort of more of a sort of a white album song where, you know, somebody would have a song and the others would come in and help them complete it, you know, and sort yeah. of Paul would be very, you know, the four of them would probably never be in the studio together on it. You know, they'd wander in and out and stuff. Mm -hmm. It sort of felt like that sort of period, uh, sort of like a white album song to me. Hmm. So I think this is a CD versus vinyl thing. Yeah. But I'm really, I love the albums. I love the fact I got the vinyls. What I don't understand is they had the chance to completely reorder these like they did on the CD. Yeah. So yes. the, the whole point, as Rob mentioned earlier, is these were chronological. Yes. But what they've actually done is just recreated the two albums and then the you third have an album. Extra album, yeah. The extra album. They just put stuff on. And the blue album is the worst because the first track on it is now and then. Oh, really? Oh, I hadn't yes. noticed that. Oh, that's interesting. Instead of it being uh, the last one. So yeah. you go from... 1970 to 2023 <laughs> and then back to blackbird and it's like that's yeah yeah that's that's um, terrible so uh, you know and unlike the red album i wish they'd taken those cover versions and put them up front right i you know i you've got the chance to completely repress and reorganize these things that you didn't need to make them exact duplicates of the 1973 releases. And I, I, wonder, I don't think. And I wonder why they did that too, because it's not like they're doing just another pressing of the original record. Exactly. Because these are yeah. completely new mixes. Yeah. They're they could have put them in the any order time. they wanted. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I'm very pleased that the CD and when I first bought the CDs, I didn't even know that the LPs were not ordered chronologically. Yeah. And yeah. I'm so glad that the CDs are because I would not be happy with this if they were not that way. Yeah, well, I, I love I love the vinyl, but that just bugs the hell out of me. <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break. We will be back in 30 seconds to wrap up our show. Stick around. We'll see you then. Hey, Joe. Hey, Tony. Do you like ads about podcasts? You know it. How about ads about Doctor Who podcasts? Even better. Well, you're in luck, because this is an ad about a Doctor Who podcast. Wow, I love it. And you'll love us, The Watchathon of Rassilon, a podcast about Doctor Who. I'll buy 12. Actually, it's free. I'll buy 13, then. All right, so that's that's it. That's putting, I think that's our last Beatles episode for this year. <laughs> uh, we've got another one planned for January, so... <laughs> So thank you, Mr. Porter, for joining us for this discussion. I really enjoyed having you part with us. 
Yes. Thank you very much. And just because I just ended on a downer before the break, by the way, I really do love these albums. Um, <laughs> uh, they will be getting, mul my wife will be so fed up of them by the end of the week because they will be getting multiple, multiple relists. Right. But, uh, uh, so, yeah, this has been a, an exceptional Beatles weekend and, and I look forward to uh, giving these wonderful remixes and yeah. multiple listens going forward. So tell people where they can find more about you. And if they want to look into your book or your podcast, tell people where they can find more information. So for me, generally, you can find me at my website, alanjporter.com. Um, but for the uh, Beatles stuff, if you're on Twitter, we have uh, a, at Before Beatles. And um, as I mentioned earlier, we have the monthly newsletter, uh, beforebeatles.substack.com. Um, and the the podcast, um, I'm going to give you the old URL because it's a lot easier than the new one, um, is anchor.fm backslash before Beatles. Um, and now it's owned by Spotify. That yes. URL is ridiculously long. It so, is terrible. But, it will get, but the anchor.fm <laughs> one will get you there. Or you can just find us on any of your favorite podcasting platforms. And actually, most of our listeners uh, come to us via Spotify. So we're all over Spotify. Just search before they were Beatles and you will find us. All right, Rob. Where can people find you and your lovely voice? Well, my dulcet tones um, can be found in uh, several places um, on the Weekend Justice podcast for deepcoffee.com. Also on Louder Than War Radio on the internets uh, every Monday from 6 to 8 Greenwich Mean Time, uh, which I believe I have to sort out the daylight savings time in England because I'm American and we're dumb. Um, but that's 12 to 2 Central, 1 to 3 Eastern. And then, um, so all of that is archived on Mixcloud. You can hear all 35 editions of the show um, on Mixcloud as well as the new the new one if you miss it on on Monday. And then Wednesdays, um, I'm still at it on KDHX uh, in St. Louis. So you can listen to that Wednesdays from seven to nine uh, Central Time. Uh, or if you're out and about, maybe you got to pick up a prescription or maybe you've got a spitting cobra you have to get out of your house. You can... Um, Listen to it on the archive stream at kdhx.org for uh, two weeks. He'd show his archive for, for two weeks. Cobra. <laughs> That's a new one. Stephanie, yes. there are people. The people are desperate the people. to know more about you. They're desperate to connect with you. How <laughs> would they do so? Well, you can find me on Facebook at Stephanie Seymour Music. You can find me on Instagram at there underscore r underscore birds. And I also have a website, therearebirds.com. And you can find me on all the streaming platforms like Spotify and all that. And on Bandcamp too, under my name. Right on. I've got a lovely little website called cosmiccreative.com, K-O-Z-M-I-C creative.com. And that's got a bunch of books that I've written and a couple of books that I've published by other people and the podcasts that I do. So go check that out. We will be back next week. Actually, I think next week is just me and Anthony. I think right? it is. You two are off gallivanting around the globe. Anthony and I are going to be here and we're going to be talking about the recently published Rolling Stone list of the 250 best guitarists. And let me tell you, we both have things to say about this list. So join us for that. Everybody take care. Have a great week and we'll see you next time. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon 
or by shopping for the Tea Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.